Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining once again. On this episode of the Higher Potential Living Podcast, I'm joined by Kimberly Van Ryan. Now, Kimberly is a child and youth worker with her BA in Human Resources, and she's been doing amazing work around the Orangeville area with people of all kinds of developmental differences for years now. And in December of 2019, she founded the Branching Out Support Service located once again in Orangeville, Ontario. I also know Kimberly from her work in the community with yoga and teaching yoga and all the other amazing things that she does. All in all, I think she's just an awesome person. Um, In this conversation, we ended up getting into some of the work that she does do with these developmental differences. And we talked about just kind of breaking down some of the, the stigmas. We also talked about different ways that we can help support people who have Uh, those in their family with developmental differences, and maybe some of the challenges that we don't even think about a lot of the times when that's not our reality. So hopefully there's some new insights here in this episode for you. And of course, I hope you enjoy. Hello, Kim, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. This is really exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. So we had a little bit of a conversation uh, just before I hit the record button, just to make sure we're on the same page. And there's a lot of different ways and directions that we can take this this podcast in. But before we kind of go down the road of everything that you do with branching out and everything else, uh, maybe you could start just by speaking a little bit to your journey and getting to where you you are because I've known you for a little while now through some yoga and stuff like that but it seems like there's been a drive there from the beginning around uh, some mental health aspects some self-care all that so I feel like there's a story behind that as there, there typically is so I don't know if you want to start there maybe yeah so um, I started my career. Can I, I can take this from a work perspective. A lot of my personal story comes through that way. Sure. Um, so I started out my career as a child and youth worker. So I have a child and youth work diploma and I started working in foster and adoption care. So I worked for a private foster care agency, like when I was like 20 years ago, hmm. that was my first job. And I cared for and case managed a lot of children who had very significant trauma and um, abuse backgrounds. So I did that for a number of years. Um, I did all my training in play therapy. I did a lot of training in childhood trauma and attachment. And I did that work for nearly a decade, not quite. And then I experienced some pretty significant burnout, which is not um, uncommon in well, anyone's field, but certainly not when you're working with really highly traumatized children. So I had a lot of secondary trauma from that myself as well, from hearing their stories and working through some of that. Uh, So I took a break from uh, the human services field. It was kind of a forced break, but I needed it. And I took some time off and then I took a job in a culinary position um, here in Orangeville. I made handmade infused oils and vinegars. Um, I just needed something a little different to do. And that job was actually an oasis for me at that point in time. Um, I had experience at the end of my um, burnout experience. I was in a pretty difficult place, mental health. Um, I was addicted and I needed something really different um, in order to break through some of those things Mm. with I did, um, and have been recovered and and whole for quite some time. Um, so I'd had that culinary job and I think that was around the time that we met as well, because at that time I also got really involved in yoga, Mm -hmm. which was a huge piece of what got me whole and healthy, probably the hugest piece out of everything I tried during that time. So I was making the handmade oils and vinegars. It was a really super job. And one day my boss came into the shop and told me that the business was not making enough money in order to sustain what we were doing. And I lost my job. 
So that was really hard. <laughs> I think you and Lauren may have been the first people I called because <laughs> I had to teach a yoga class that night. I think I was just, just finishing my teacher training hours. And um, that was really challenging. So I spent a summer kind of soul searching and figuring out what was next for me. And I ended up taking a maternity leave position for a day program that served adults with developmental disabilities. And that was not a population I had ever worked with before, even when I was in the field prior. Mm. So I thought, well, it's a maternity leave. Like if I really hate it, I can just like get out of that, go do something else. Um, turns out I absolutely loved it. The people were brilliant. I loved the work. I just enjoyed almost everything about it. And it helped me with my own healing process still. Like I found something that felt like home for me. Um, I found that in yoga, but I found that in this job and I ended up staying there for quite some time and it didn't end great. There were some real challenges at the end of that position that shook my world up pretty hard. Um, and maybe on another day we can have a, a, a talk about uh, about the human services field and how these things sometimes happen. Unfortunately, when it's still a business and all of those elements of business end up uh, kind of coming into the play when when the real passion there is for the people that you're you're working with and that's what you fell in love with. Yeah. So that came to an end quite abruptly. Um, just prior to that, I had finished my bachelor's of arts. Uh, so I went back to university somewhere in that starting the new job, finding out I really loved it and that I wanted to stay in the field and I wanted to develop myself. So I took my BA. Um, I finished that in two years and um, that was that was amazing and really helped set me up for where I am now. So that job ended. I knew I needed to move on. I applied to probably 15 positions after that job ended. Um, and none of them called me, not a single one. Mm. So as we were going through this process, I was like, okay, maybe this is the day I go out on my own. And that's what happened. Still, it's still a bit of a blur for me. That was a there was a lot going on during that time. Um, some of the staff team from the previous position that I was working with um, decided to come with me, as well as some of the families. And that's how branching out was born. We decided really, you branched out. We did. Um, we decided that that's that was the best move for these families, for ourselves, and we started our own organization. And actually, so although we met during the yoga and all that kind of stuff, and, and Lauren and I loved going in and getting infused oils and all that kind of stuff when you were doing that as well, but I actually started working with you and the group that you were working at at that previous location and coming in and doing some drumming with the group and all that kind of stuff. And I know because you already felt like a safe person for me, because I knew you from the studio and all this kind of stuff. I felt like it was really easy for me to just go up to you and, and ask you straight up, like, I haven't worked with this demographic before. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I've drummed with a lot of different people. I've taught at different groups, but this is pretty unique. And there was a bit of a learning curve there, but ultimately much less than I thought there would mm. be. There was a lot of um, receptability to the tactile movement of hitting drums, even like I was afraid that once we started making loud noises that people would react adversely and all this kind of stuff. But we had a, we had a lot of fun yeah. in those sessions that we did. Yeah. Which kind of got me thinking about, you know, we'll get to uh, where you are now with branching out, but it got me kind of thinking about, you know, that same unknowing that I had going into that environment of like, you know, do I, and this sounds terrible now knowing what I know, but like, do I go in there and do I, you know, speak in a baby voice or, you know, do I have to speak extra slow in case people aren't hearing me and how much are they actually listening, even if they're nonverbal and all of these different questions that I just did not know and still really am just scratching the surface with a lot of that kind of stuff. But I thought, how awesome would it be to get someone who's gone through that themselves? They've gone through the whole learning curve and then some and making this a, a part of their life and creating a podcast episode where anyone who's listening now can maybe pick up some different pieces or maybe just start to shift perspective on how we see 
some of these uh, individuals as members of our society. So that's a little, little teaser there, but now you're here, you're in branching out. You have like, obviously things are different now because we're recording this during uh, the pandemic, but how did things change for you when all of a sudden now you had this location, you're getting families in there and you got to like really get to hone in your own programming and everything at this point in time. Yeah. So um, fortunately I work with an extremely um, forward thinking group of individuals on my staff, my staff and managers are all um, really interested in developing philosophy that we can share with others, but also we have the benefit of being able to act that out because we work with a group of individuals who have diagnosed developmental disabilities. So it's not just about us sitting around thinking of some great ideas. It's how we can actually prove this as an example in our community. So we're in Orangeville and I know that um, that's a small community, but it's still a community that we can impact and set an example in. So I think that's the benefit of being able to run this program as a small business Mm -hmm. is that we have complete control over how we're structuring that and what that means. So we've gone into this. We don't use the words developmental disability in our title of our program, which was the first step of being really intentional about not labeling that. So we're, it's branching out support services. Um, I think everyone needs support at some point in their life or I did at some point in my life. So I think we tried to kind of even just in the name of our business, blow that open a little bit that we didn't call it something about disabilities or special needs or neurodiversities, which is a term I quite like, but we're not using it. So we can be very intentional about how we use our language. And that has been something we focused on. Well, and that touches on kind of one of the things that we talked about just before we jumped on this podcast Mm -hmm. is about how as a society we love to label it's almost like you get into homo sapien development and somewhere along the line you get into actually i'm just currently reading the the book sapiens and it Mm -hmm. talks about this about you know our our drive for gossip and to create stories and labeling and all this kind of stuff but as we move forward as a society we're finding that labeling is getting very tricky we have you know people all across the spectrum of LGBTQ and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, he, him pronoun and all this. And I just wonder if eventually we get to the point where we realize that we don't need to label anybody as anything that we can just see each other as unique individuals in society. And that there is a place for everybody, no matter if you're acting or feeling a certain way one day or completely different another day, like it's just so diverse and even walking into branching out like it's very evident right off the bat that everyone here is different from from the the people in the program to even the people who are guiding the programs you have people with different strengths different walks of life who are coming to offer what they have some people give off a bit more of like a party animal vibe and other people give off more of like a nurturing vibe and that's going to relate and connect with people of all kinds of different needs and everything so this idea of breaking down some of the labels you and i were even talking about how that was even in the mindset when you chose the location Mm. for branching out so maybe you could speak a little bit about that yeah so i think that from the labels if you want to take that a little bit further we usually take those labels and then assign those labels to a specific space Mm-hmm. Right. So um, people who have psychiatric issues go to the psychiatric ward. People who are abused go to the shelter. Do you know what I mean? Like we do that and then I do it too. So this is not a, a judgment or a shame or blame. It's just kind of inspecting the process. Mm-hmm. So when we decided not to just talk about, not that we don't talk about disabilities, when we decided not to label disabilities, we also created a space that anyone would want to show up in. So in our space at Branching Out, we have, it looks, I don't know, have you been inside Branching Out recently? Probably not because of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So it looks like uh, someone's living room mm-hmm. with a small kitchen. It looks like an apartment. And we also have expanded into an apartment space. Um, but often because of the roots of institutionalization for people who had disabilities or differences, there were a lot of people in institutions who didn't have disabilities. They had something else wrong with them. 
But those people that are thrown away by society are sometimes also put in throwaway spaces. So they don't have a nice, they don't have nice couches. They don't have Mm-hmm. big windows. They don't have plants growing on the windowsills. It's kind of like this broken down second rate looking place. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, our entire field is moving away from that very, very, very quickly. I can't say I've been in any spaces like that recently, um, but certainly in the past that existed. So then we make the space. It's not specific to somebody who has a disability. Mm-hmm specific to everyone and it's right downtown orangeville it is not hidden away it is not placed out of the way so that we're not in people's ways if we come out onto the sidewalk with a wheelchair mm-hmm. we don't worry about that we're downtown community business just like just like your business mm-hmm. right and, we and were- your business is also an accessible space that people whoever needs to go to cali yoga can go to cali yoga it's a beautiful space that is open to everyone. So is ours, right? Whether we serve a different population or not, we have the exact same philosophy as you do. Well, thank you for the plug, first of all. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I work there too. <laughs> we, we talked about um, where even being downtown, and one of the things that I love that, that you do with everybody is you're always out somewhere. Mm. Like, even if it's pretty cold out there, everyone's bundled up um, to the point where maybe they can't even put their arms down straight, but you're, you're, you're out and about. And it actually brings a smile to my face when I'm, you know, driving down the road or something. And I see this little train of, of people walking by in their snowsuits or in the summertime, just skipping along or whatever. And I get to honk my horn and wave. And it's amazing. First of all, in my whole learning curve process, of the memory, like, again, it's just all of these perceived limitations mm-hmm. that you see someone with uh, either Down syndrome or, or something like that, that you would easily like label as like, okay, I'm going to slow things down for and all this kind of stuff. And then to find out that they remember this interaction that you had with them 10 years ago that you've completely forgot about. And they remember like the clothes you were wearing that day and everything else. It's pretty incredible. I, it's just me kind of nerding out a little bit. But to have that interaction and to be able to see them right downtown, see everyone, all of you get to see you out everywhere waving. Um, it's great. I love it. And it feels like it's breaking down um, some of those approach barriers. So you know, one of the things that I w- was talking to you about in this whole learning curve process is, you know, it can kind of be intimidating sometimes if you want to interact or you want to even lend help. If you're, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you see someone who's not in a group like with, uh, with you, but if you want to lend help or something, but if you just don't know how to approach a situation, you don't know how to uh, initiate a dialogue or something, then it just seems easier to leave it alone, to walk away and to not get yourself involved. So one of the questions that I had for you at one point in time is like, just how do you approach these conversations? I think you said just like, how would you approach me? If you liked like the t-shirt that I was wearing or something like that, you'd come up and say, I like your t-shirt. Where'd you get it? Or something like that. So have you found in the process of specifically all the, the community activities that you're doing? Cause I know you had um, your groups involved in like yoga, karate, going to the libraries and all this kind of stuff. Have you found any issues integrating everybody into the community or anything like that? Yes. Yeah, we have. We've had a couple um, negative situations, and I think those stick with you. Mm. I would say in our community, we have way more positive interactions with people and people who um, really have a desire like you to learn. So yeah, there there have been some issues. And I think that um, only one of them ever was mean. And the other ones were maybe just people not understanding. that perhaps someone with autism, I'm just gonna use that as an example because it's a good one, um, walked through a crowd of people and kind of bonked into some people Mm -hmm. because they just didn't have the exact same way of walking through a crowd um, because of some of their sensory issues and not understanding the social norm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think once people realize, sometimes as support workers, we will do a bit of a loud talk to let the people in the vicinity know there's something a little different going on here. We're teaching some life skills. We're, we're um, encouraging different social skills to happen. And once people pick up on that, they're generally quite interested in what's happening 
um, and are peaceful and calm about it. Yeah. With the groups that you work with and the individuals that you work with, what is the like range of, I don't, I don't know, functionability is the, the right term for, again, I'm still on this learning curve process, yeah. but I know with some of the people that I've worked with from your group, there's nonverbal and even like the coordination of like getting them to drum and stuff like that. You can tell it's more picking up on a sensory level, but right. that like communication to the actual act of, okay, hit the drum with your right hand, left hand, it's not quite there. To people who totally pick that kind of stuff up, you can see them definitely taking on a job role and all this kind of stuff. So what's kind of like the range when you find you're typically getting contacted by parents or family members to say like, we need some help What's generally like the range of functionability? Yeah, so I think for our program specifically, there's a couple different ranges just based on some of the activities that we're doing. So adults who come to day service, so we run a day program for adults uh, with differences in our community. In general, they have good community safety skills because part of what we do is out and about volunteering, being a really active part of our community. So for that program, um, we get people who have really great community safety skills and maybe need to work on employment skills or life skills or whatever it is that they choose to work on. And then we have another part of our program that's more one-to-one based. Mm. So a lot of those individuals have complex special needs. And generally what that looks like is a dual diagnosis. So we would have someone who had a developmental disability, perhaps they're on the autism spectrum, but they also have quite a significant either trauma background or mental health um, issues that they're managing as well. In that program, it's all one-to-one support. So they're still getting the same exposure to the community, um, but it's gonna be on a one-to-one basis instead of on a group basis. And that's kind of how we separate out who needs what. Um, If they can have the skills to function safely in a group, then that's where they are. Um, Absolutely, we wanna encourage that at all times because we all need social circles. Like that's a basic human right and need. And then people who are on one-to-one support right now, the goal is that they would learn self-regulation and good social skills and safety, and will be able to join the group eventually. And what are some of the conversations kind of look like if, if uh, a parent or guardian is, is reaching out to you and saying like, you know, I, I need, I need help with, with some time management. I need, you know, help with some different forms of support and stuff like that. Because I, I feel like there's probably those that have been in the system and they're maybe just looking to, you know, change who their support givers are going to be. But then I feel like that initial step of like feeling like, oh, my goodness, is this not something I can handle on my own? At mm-hmm. what point do I actually ask for help? How do I ask for help? I, I'm not a parent, but I feel like that would be a really tough decision to make of like, am I going to yeah, make that step and say, I need help with this. So I'm curious, how do some of the conversations go with you when you get new parents or guardians kind of reaching out? So almost always those parents or guardians would have gone through a pretty extensive process before they get to me. So probably Mm -hmm. starts with the family doctor. Like if they notice something is a little bit different about their child, Mm -hmm. family doctors, usually the first step. Um, Families also with well, actually people of all ages, but generally they would come into the system younger would be in contact with our local Dufferin Child and Family Services, who has a brilliant um, developmental team that helps families get hooked up with all the different resources because some people need individual therapy. Some people need OT, some people need speech and language, right? So all of those services come in through um, public organizations like, um, we don't call ours the children's aid, but it would be something like that. So different child and family services or community living, which is a ministry of community and social services funded organization that helps people who have disabilities. Uh So they usually come to me fairly late in the entire process. They almost always come to me with a diagnosis. I don't know that we've ever served anyone without an official medical diagnosis. Um, And they call me and they start asking questions and it's usually a pretty long process um, because a lot of trust needs to be built. And I understand that Mm -hmm. in between myself and caregivers or my, my support teams and caregivers, because 
even though these people are exhausted from what they've been doing, caregiving full time for somebody who has some, you know, some differences and, and some real needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also not just going to let anybody take their kid. <laughs> so there's a lot of rapport and trust building. And sometimes it starts with an individual coming out to do like a two hour recreational activity with us. Mm-hmm. You know, keep it simple and then see if there's more that can follow on after that. And this may be a question you can answer easily, or maybe it's more complex than I'm putting out there. But if I was, say, just a friend and I know a family and they they have some complex needs or they have some different kinds of disabilities going on within them, I'm not necessarily the person that can um, say, hey, let me, you know, take your child for a weekend and let you get away or something. But are there other ways that, you know, people can just offer help to families who need a little bit of extra support that way, just from a complete outsider perspective to just say, you know, why don't I, why don't I make you guys a meal or something just so you don't have to think, you know, is there anything that you can think of that can just be. Yeah. And that's a really, that's a really good question because a lot of our families do like, they can't call the 16 year old down the street and be like, Hey, come babysit my kids. Mm -hmm. Like, because sometimes, and it's because of like medical issues, right. Where you need like someone trained and competent to deal with certain things, but definitely as well as with um, how people's behaviors sometimes manifest, Mm -hmm. we can't just leave them with anyone. So yes, I would say, Um, direct support is not always the best option if you're not trained, but bringing food hundred percent is huge. Offering to come over and do the dishes and vacuum Mm. would be huge. Like a lot of our caregivers really don't have time to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, take their dog for a weekend. So they have one last thing to worry about. (laughs) I don't know. Like, I think there are really small things you can do that, um, would, would start to fill that that gap for a family offering to drives would be a big one because often these families have a million appointments for one of their children. Right. And they may, there may be another kid in their house who maybe doesn't have a diagnosed um, difference or medical or whatever, but that child still needs to go to gymnastics. Well, when we're not in COVID, like they still need to go to gymnastics and they still need to go to their grandma's house for a sleepover and they still need, and driving, like when we, especially when we live rurally, these caregivers are spending as much time in the car as they're in their house just to do appointments. So could you help out that way? Gas card? Yeah. (laughs) Any of that kind. Well, because I feel like innately as human beings, we want to give care. We want to support. Um, I think when we get caught up in our head and we're in fight flight mode, maybe a little bit less because we're focusing a little bit more inwardly. But I believe deep down we want to be able to support. But I feel like with so many of the different things that we all go through in our lives, we just don't know how to support people. Like I've had podcast episodes um, where we talked about, you know, mental health and suicide and depression and all this kind of stuff. And there's times where, you know, someone's struggling and you want to do something, but you just think like, I have no idea how to touch this. The best thing to do is to just leave this alone, maybe ignore that it's even there, so on and so forth. And it becomes one of those kinds of pieces that we just don't talk about. And yet there's still that individual who's exhausted and maybe very close to burnout. And um, that's not what we want either. So knowing those little things that we can do to support within the community, definitely. Um, As far as being an individual inside a community where there's organizations like yours, what are ways that we can support the organizations? Hmm. Um, I think volunteering to teach skills is a great one because the more contacts people with disabilities have it goes for all of us, but especially for people with disabilities have the better. There's a real dynamic. If you have a disability, probably most of whom you consider consider your friends are paid staff. Mm-hmm. And that is like, when you think about that, that like, that gives me a punch in the gut because I have access to tons of friends and none of them are paid to be with me. Mm-hmm. Like, how would you feel about yourself? Like I'm your friend. If like, you knew I was getting paid, whatever, $20 an hour mm-hmm. to hang out with you. Right. It, like it makes you go. Uh, so I think the more connections we have, because when you wave at anyone from my pro 
program or anyone you know, really, we're not paying you to do that. You're being our friend Jay from drumming. We're waving, right? That's beautiful. They, I think our participants get a real sense of connection in the community because you chose to do that. No one made you do that. You didn't do that to get a paycheck on Friday afternoon. So I think organic connections, if you're able to come in and teach an art lesson, you're able to meet us at the community garden and garden with us for an hour. When you know we're gonna be at the pool, you come to public swim too and you chill, you hang out, you offer friendship, mm -hmm. right? Brilliant. Yeah, I like that. And it really, like that kind of stuff, it, it comes back in ways that I think most of us yeah don't recognize because we don't find ourselves feeling like we have, it would feel like an excess. Like I need to have excess energy to give energy. But I think there's a big piece there that we don't realize that we get so much energy back from that kind of support. Like, as you know, I volunteer at uh, a camp and association with sick kids. And I'm actually excited. I have a, a podcast episode coming up with the CEO of um, that cool. organization, but yeah not only is it so like exhausting, I that's a volunteer position that I do every summer, but it's not as exhausting, like nap time in the middle of the day is as much for the camp counselors and volunteers as it is for the kids. But the little interactions that are just amazing and the insights, like you and I had a bit of a conversation about, you know, I talk a lot about mindfulness and stuff like that. And by the nature of what some of these individuals are experiencing the way that they're um, brain maybe works or whatever. For some cases, they're a lot more in the moment than oh, wow. a lot of us mindfulness teachers are. And there's so much that we can, we can kind of glimpse from that. And the way that I think it can like fuel us back. Yeah. It's definitely one of those situations that, you know, if you've never tried giving back to your community in, in some fashion like that, give it a go because what you can get back from it is, is pretty rewarding. I was thinking when we were talking about labels, and this was something I wanted to touch on because it reminded me of a uh, Zen koan, which is like a, a Buddhist riddle, if you will. Um, but, the, but one of the stories that came to mind when we were talking about labeling and how limiting labels are on a like space, but also on individuals. And this was, uh, this is like a total tangent, but this is, story goes that there's a, a master and his two disciples and he puts a fan down on the table and he says to the two disciples, describe to me what this is without words. And the one disciple picked it up, opened up the fan and just started fanning himself with it. And the master said, okay, not bad. And he put the fan back down. The other student picked up the fan, looked at it, scratched his back with it opened it up, put a piece of pie on it, and then slid the pie across the table to the master. And the master looked at him and said, now you're ready to take on your own disciples. And mm -hmm. it was this whole, like, you know, the way that these riddles are is you're meant to meditate on it and try to pull out what you can from it. But this whole idea of, even if I were to say to you, here's a fan, describe it to me without using words. As soon as we put the label on the object of this is a fan, I'm going to treat it differently. I'm going to hold it differently. I'm already going to have this script in my mind of how I'm supposed to use it and everything. Whereas if I say, here's this object or here's this person, just treat them like a person without, you know, and I, I do understand the importance for um, medical purposes for diagnosing and all this kind of stuff. But if we can let that not be the first thing that comes up in our interactions, the way that that can change the way that the interactions actually go is pretty, pretty remarkable as far as that goes. So that was my little piece yeah. on, on labeling. Well, and I, I, I think some of our language in the field, and like, I do have to say that even as a professional who's studied this, who works in this field, like, other professionals and myself, we, we're, we're still wading through this, right? How we best use our language um, to reflect who we are. So we used to say autistic people. Mm -hmm. We used to say way worse things before that. I'm going to use a more recent example. Now we are more likely to say a person with autism, the same way you might say um, a person who has bipolar disorder mm -hmm. or a person who works at the shoe factory. Like it's a descriptor of something about them 
But we know the person who works at the shoe factory, that's not the only thing that's true about that person. So I think we have tried to shift that language a little bit. Mm -hmm. Then we moved in towards the language of neurodiversities, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is helpful for, because I think we all have neurodiversities. (laughs) Like are any of us exempt from that? Mm -hmm. Not, Not really. Right. And then we just say people. Well, and I look back at my own development, like when I was in school, mm-hmm. um, I, I just, me and the written language, we are not friends. So I'm not a very good reader whatsoever. My grammar is terrible. Uh, people tried to diagnose me as dyslexic. I had for quite a few years in school had um, permission to have someone come and like physically write the tests for me. So I would just speak out the answers and all this kind of stuff and being labeled with, I guess what was called when I was a kid is like these diff- disabilities and these limitations and everything. It changed the way I even thought about myself. It made right. me feel like I was not as smart as everybody else. And even going to like, uh, when I went to school for architecture mm-hmm. at the end of high school, they even asked me, Like we can put something in your transcripts that can allow you extra time on exams and all this kind of stuff. And I was determined, this was like rebellious. Me is like, no, I don't want any of this to carry over anymore. I'm tired of these labels and all this kind of stuff. If I'm going to do well in my post-secondary, I want it to be on my merit. And it just so happened that in the nature of going to school for architecture, I did really well with math and geometry and all this kind of stuff. And I did quite well in my program. And yet that's this whole piece where it's like, okay, this is something I'm not very good at. And I know this about myself, but I also know what my strengths are. And it took a while for me to let go of that feeling of like, I'm inferior. I'm not as intelligent. I'm not, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, we talk about when we have the group around and everything and people are going directly up to you and asking you questions and stuff and you having to say, you know, they can hear you. They're right here. You can ask them the questions and all this kind of stuff. But this is all being taken in. They're listening. They're, you know, they're acting active in the conversation, if maybe just in their way. So I think, yeah, being aware and understanding that, of course, this is a learning curve and everything, but being aware that those labels do have impacts on confidence, on the way that we can move forward in our lives. And it's a, I think it's a much bigger field than maybe we have time for in this podcast episode. <laughs> we're thinking about though, right? Like we're, I mean, I think I could have a comparative story to you with some of um, your perceived learning disabilities or differences. Um, I was given a diagnosis of bipolar two once mm-hmm. and I was having a lot of mental health concerns. Um, and, and w- what does that mean for me today? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Like it actually doesn't mean anything to who I am today because of my healing process. And I don't think that words like autism or down syndrome denote really anything past a medical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Understanding. I think for possibly for caregivers though, there might be some comfort Mm -hmm. in diagnosis as well. Like I know uh, someone that was a friend of the family for a while their uh, teenager, she was very big on telling everyone right up front, he's autistic. Mm. And it was almost like, and I hate to say this, but it was almost like a get out of jail free card. It's like he was, he was not well, but he was 16 or something at the time. And the family would come over. He was not well behaved at the dinner table. He was not well mannered in general, the way he treated his mother, the way he treated all of us. And it felt like that diagnosis was used as a shield from some basic manners where I've worked with people from your organization. I've worked with people from other organizations and just other people in life who (laughs) were, I guess what we would say diagnosed the same way with autism that did not act the way that this individual acted. So I don't, do you find that sometimes it's uh, it's used as a little bit of a defense mechanism as well? Yeah, that can, that can happen. Uh, I think that, that when we, when we label people, we're going to run that risk, right? He heard that somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't, I kind of doubt he made that up in his own brain. Right. Yeah. No, someone well, gave yeah. him a diagnosis. He was involved in programs and stuff like that, but it was like, I get to do whatever I want to do now. Ah, because, because, 
Yeah. Yeah, and I think he was clever. He was super. He was very aware from my outside perspective of the way that he was manipulating. Mm -hmm. Yep. It yeah. happens. Yeah. It happens. I also like completely believe in people's um, right that if they want to use certain terms and labels for themselves, mm -hmm. that's okay. If if that's their choice, I am in support of that. And if they ask me to refer to them in a certain way, because that's their choice and that's make them, that's what makes them feel the most safe in who they are. I'm happy to do that. Mm -hmm. It's well, about what, if, when we start imposing it. Mm -hmm. When we talk about it, like you're, you're a certified yoga teacher and we talk about it in the yoga philosophy and it comes up in a lot of Buddhist philosophy as well. But this idea of, you know, deep down beneath the color of our skin, beneath our gender and all this kind of stuff. Like that's not where our identity really lies. Like one of the things that I often talk about in my courses and stuff is that we're not the pie, we're not the physical, we're not the intellectual, we're not the emotional. So if we strip away all of these different aspects, then what's really left is pure consciousness. And it doesn't matter how fast you're reading or how well you are putting numbers together or words together or vocal or non um, deep down, you are a living being. And as long as you're a living being, you are a conscious homo sapien here interacting, or I would say even all sentient beings are made up of the same building block. And when we can really start focusing on that a lot more, I think we can find the fuel for a lot more compassion in the world as well. Absolutely. Last piece that I wanted to talk on, just being aware of time and everything, yeah. last little piece that I wanted to talk on is from your interaction with uh, the parents, the caregivers, the guardians, and all this kind of stuff, the balance, and I know this is a big question, but the balance mm -hmm. of self-care or mm -hmm. like making that step into saying, I need help. I need, maybe I need you to pick up more hours. I need, you know, because I feel like there could be a lot of guilt wrapped up around saying like, I can't handle my own child anymore. Or now that they're getting, um, you know, becoming adults that maybe this isn't some of the stuff that I feel comfortable dealing with and all of this kind of stuff. So do you ever have to kind of talk to parents about the support for them or caregivers for the support for them? Yeah, we do. And we actually, we have um, something called the community of practice in our organization, which is where support workers um, get together and we talk about things like this, because I think this is how we start to, to move towards change in some of these areas. And this was our topic on Wednesday night was um, caregiver support. And we work really, really hard at our organization to see ourselves as well as the parents mm -hmm. kind of in on an equal playing field as far as caregivers are are concerned because they care for their adult children and, and younger children. When we're talking about those parents, I'm just going to keep it specific to the day program right now. It's adults. So they're still caring for their adult children in their homes. Some of them have been doing that for more than 30 years mm -hmm. because there are no residential places available for these people to move on to. We are also their primary caregivers because we spend sometimes upwards of eight hours a day with some of them, um, the individuals and, and people who we serve. We try and do big grand gestures for caregiver support all the time and they always fall flat. And this is something that we started investing. We were like, okay, so we're offering like support groups and like, we'll do them on zoom. So you don't leave your house and we'll have Jason would be happy to come in and teach caregiver mindfulness. And the parents are all like, no, like, no, thank you. We can't figure this out. Right? <laughs> What's happening here? Because sometimes caregiver support turns into one more thing that they have to do. Mm -hmm. And if you're a single working mom taking care of your adult son, who's on the autism spectrum, plus another child and your dog and your elderly parents, like me saying, oh, how about you come to a caregiver support group? That is the last thing that that woman needs. Mm -hmm. that woman needs a cup of tea, right? Mm -hmm. So we really have focused on exactly what we were talking about before when you asked, like, if I have a friend of a, a family friend who has someone with a difference in, in their home or a family member, what should I do? We really, really focus in on the little stuff. Mm -hmm. So at Christmas time, when program was running prior to lockdown, we kept the 
individuals, the adults at program for pizza and a movie so that all the moms had time to two hours to go do one last quick Christmas errand Mm. shopping before the holiday hit. Right. Um, We try and do these things that are consistent and, and keeping them small helps us keep them consistent. Um, You talk to a mom who's been raising a kid for decades with a developmental difference, what she needs. And um, it's usually like, I'd love an hour to go out and walk at Island Lake alone, Mm -hmm. not have another conversation with you about what I need or what my kid needs or another doctor or another thing like this. Right. I think that is, is probably closer to what they would say. Now, again, every caregiver is going to be really different. So a lot of this is based around, how you run your relationships with caregivers. What we notice to be the most impactful thing is every day when those caregivers show up at the door and they get a positive report about something that their adult did that day that was absolutely brilliant. And those always exist. That they have that human connection with us. They hear something so great. They see a big smile. They pack them in the car and off they go. And we do that day after day after day after day. That's the impact. It's not one more support group or one more therapy session. You touched on different things there. That was, (laughs) as you know, like I talk a lot about that balance between the doing mode and the being mode. Mm -hmm. I've done many lectures and stuff like that on it. And that is one of the, I think the, I don't want to call it the uh, farce, but this uh, illusion of care is when we are caught in that doing mode mentality, then we often feel like the fix needs to also fall within the realm of doing. So it's like, okay, yes, I have this time to myself now. What should I do for myself? And instead of like, okay, I have this time to myself. How can I be? How can I be here right now when our minds are trying to you know, plan the next doctor's appointment and session with this and all that kind of stuff. How can I literally just be in this moment and enjoy this cup of tea or go for that Island Lake walk. And it's, it's incredible how so often being, which involves doing less can be one of the most difficult things for any of us, let alone someone, you know, with that kind of situation where it's so hard to slice out um, some time for yourself. But for any of us, how difficult it is to just be. Yeah. Oh, we're interesting. We're an interesting species. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. But it does. It really speaks a lot to the assumptions that professionals make, which is why we try really, really hard to not use that label um, when it comes to this, because we're caregiving Two. So the other thing that we really focus on, and this is the hardest thing you can ask anyone on my team, we've, we've, I don't know, fails the right word. We don't always hit the mark is that if we're not setting a good example for our parents, mm-hmm. why would they bother? Mm-hmm. You know, we can't like, if I, if they know I work 24 seven, I never take a weekend off with my partner. How can I be setting a good example for other people to do the same? Mm-hmm right? Like our overwork and our stress and our desire to do one more support group and one more blah, 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 whatever it is, doesn't speak the same way as when we say, actually this weekend, Sarah's taking over and I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. You guys will be fine. And right? it all feels redundant at this point to say, cause I feel like we've all heard it so many times, but when you are balancing that work-life balance and self-care doing being mode and all this kind of stuff, after your weekend away where Sarah was taking over everything, you're going to come back with a whole renewed energy and that regular bubbly Kim self is going to come back in. And the people that you're working with are going to pick up on that. Yet, How many of us are just like at wits end, just continuously trudging through our to-do lists day after day without that. It's um, Yeah. I had I went to a lecture from Sadguru, who I don't know if you know Sadguru, but he's a, a guru and he teaches yoga and mindfulness. But I went to one of his lectures when he was in Canada, and he said, "How different would the world be if all doctors gave their patients six months diagnosis to live, mm-hmm. and just see how different people would interact and how much time they would spend to appreciate the little moments and what time they have left and appreciate." 
the things that they can do rather than dwell on the things that they can't and all of this kind of stuff. And it's, uh, I'm still looking for, I'm still looking for a little bit of a less evasive way to um, have people see just how important that being time is, whether you're working with people with complex needs or you're just trying to wake up and go to work on a regular basis to feed your family or feed yourself. So, so, so important. I know how we can do that for people. Just have them spend a couple hours with someone who has a disability. <laughs> yeah, right. They'll I... have to drop into this moment because that's really what's in existence for a lot of the people I work with just because of brain differences, right? Um, so I think that would be a, a fantastic antidote for that and a little bit less less dramatic. Yeah, I think you're onto something there because any of the time that I've spent working with organizations like yours or your organization, or time I spend volunteering at the camp where all of the people there um, have had diagnosis of cancer, mm-hmm. or any of the time that I've spent with uh, people in transition work, people who are dying and all that kind of stuff. I never feel more mindful, more appreciative of what I have in my life than in those moments. And it's not from a, a place of pity. It's, it's really hard to explain unless you've kind of been in those shoes. It's from a place of just like wonder more than anything else, I think. Yeah. There you go. We're going to roll out the program. It's going to happen <laughs> worldwide. It. Well, Kim, um, thank you so much for taking the time to have this, this chat with me. Uh, you, we used to make time, you and I, to mm-hmm. go for tea and everything <laughs> before the pandemic. Solve, so. solve all the problems, right? We did that a lot. I know I miss it. But at least we can connect on Zoom here. And uh, we got a podcast episode as a byproduct of us having a catch-up session. So that's really great. Thank you so much. Have a great day and we'll, we'll touch base with you again soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.